If you'd like to talk, turn to Revelation 2, which in the Chapel Bibles is 1,234. 1, 2, 3, 4. Very easy to remember. And we'll get stuck in. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one who is victorious, I will give a right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Amen. So why don't we pray before you dig into this. Yeah, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive. And we also thank you, Jesus, that you are alive. We thank you that you are present here. And we invite you to come and meet with each of us this morning. We turn our faces to your face and ask you to speak. That you would share your heart with us and that words of me would be forgotten, but words of you would remain. In your precious name. Amen. Um, so, Dad will vouch for this, so will my sisters, so will my mum. I grew up loving facts, and I had so many fact books, it became a bit of a joke every Christmas on my Christmas list. It was, I'd like a fact book, please. And they always had really weird names, like what to do with a wombat's bum, and whatever. <laughs> but, I don't have facts from there this morning, fortunately. But I thought we'd go into Ephesus background and then the church in Ephesus. Just, just three facts for each. Three facts for Ephesus and three facts from the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus background, it was the greatest and subsequently the, great, the wealthiest harbour in Asia. It was considered the greatest city in the province. It even had the title by some as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. In simple terms, it was important. It was a place. It was the place to be. And the church in Ephesus was founded and planted by Paul. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And he did that on his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey in AD 54 to 56, Paul spent between two to three years teaching in Ephesus. And another fact, which I didn't actually know, but 
The church in Ephesus was so passionate about sharing the gospel of Jesus that riots broke out in the streets. They were that passionate about talking about Jesus. And you'll notice, you may, I've noticed I think the chapel Bibles aren't, but if you've got a red letter Bible, when it's a red letter Bible, it's Jesus speaking. And the verses that we've just read are red letter. Let's not lose sight of that. Jesus is speaking. The living, the reigning, the ruling, the alive, the resurrected Jesus. He is speaking. And in verse 1, these are the words of him. These are the words of Jesus. And commentators consider that the seven stars and the seven lampstands represent the seven churches to Asia. Ephesus is that first church. And the word holds. It says that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. Hold here comes from the ancient Greek word kriteo. And it is a complete word. Jesus has these churches and holds them securely. It's not a loose holding. It's not a half-hearted holding. holding. It is a secure, I am holding you. The churches, like this chapel, belong to Jesus. Not the leaders or the people of the churches or the chapel. Jesus holds it. And in verse 2, we read, I know your deeds. Jesus says, Jesus doesn't just say he knows of or knows about the deeds of the church in Ephesus. He knows them. This, to me, speaks of intimate connection that Jesus has with his people, with us. He knows our deeds. He knows every life group meeting, every top street top, every wag meeting, every connect on a Friday, every men's curry night, every ladies dinner, every breakout group. He knows and sees it all. The hard work and perseverance is celebrated by Jesus. The lack of tolerance towards wicked people. The testing of those who claim to be apostles. The enduring of hardships. It is all noticed and noted by Jesus. And perseverance, the ability to persevere, is mentioned twice. And when something is repeated within biblical narrative, it is often because attention is being drawn to this. And a definition of perseverance is continued effort to do or achieve something. The church in Ephesus are very good at putting effort in about trying to achieve something. About spreading the name of Jesus, sharing the gospel. And yet, even the word yet in verse 4, when I was planning for this, really stood out to me. And yet, in spite of all the good that the church in Ephesus were doing, they lost sight of the main thing. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Forsaken. Left, abandoned, deserted, cast aside. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. The word is not lost either. It is left. 
this suggests that it may well have been a conscious decision. To those looking at the Church of Ephesus from the outside, they may well have thought or seen it as a church that has lots going on, a place of buzz, a place that does a lot for the community that come to the church on a Sunday, but those that are outside too. Everything probably looked wonderful on the outside, but the problem is a serious one. As Spurgeon once wrote, lose love, lose all. It is so easy for churches to go into autopilot and lose sight of why we do what we do and who we do it for. The church can be so busy that she forgets her beloved. And this is where the original context is interesting. The city of Ephesus at the time was at the centre of worship to Artemis, Diana of Ephesians. And she was a goddess that was worshipped and the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 foot long, 220 foot wide, with 120 columns, each 60 foot high. That's four female giraffes high. In short, big, very big. And Diana, the goddess being worshipped, was a fertility goddess who was worshipped with immoral sex. These are the people that surrounded the church at Ephesus. And so it could be considered that the church was more than aware of the goings-on outside. The people of Ephesus were worshipping and expressing their love to a dishonouring, unprincipled, wicked manner. The church at Ephesus are called to be different. They are called in this moment by Jesus to be different. To love him and to love him first. Obviously, the worship of the goddess Diana is long gone, thank goodness. But we can so easily fall into loving things and loving people and loving those around us above Jesus. We can place things above Jesus. Maybe it's money, maybe it's status, maybe it's reputation, maybe it's even our families and friends, maybe even it's church. It was, is, and always is supposed to be Jesus that we love first. And an easy way of discovering what we love is by looking at what we give our attention to. And the American philosopher Dallas Willard said, the first act of love is always the giving of attention. The first act of love is always the giving of attention. What are we giving our attention to? Who are we giving our attention to? Is Jesus our first love? Is Jesus your first love? It is so easy for churches to focus on what they are doing and as a result forget the one who holds it. Forget the one who holds them. In the words of Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, If I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The love had at first could also refer to the love within the community of believers. Did they love one another how Jesus 
wanted them to. Jesus is after intimacy with his people. And to verse 5, the first part, consider how far you have fallen. Think about how you have fallen short. Repent and do the things you did at first. And I find it encouraging how at the chapel repentance is spoken and shared about. It's not one of those words that's put away, brought out maybe once a year, every now and again. But it is actually mentioned and spoken about. Because the church generally doesn't seem to talk about repentance. It's one of those words where you're like, whoa, 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 can't touch that. But I was reading a commentary about this section of scripture and it said, the gospel without repentance is a diluted gospel. And I thought, oh, how could I, how could I represent this? And so I thought I'd have two glasses of squash, this one representing the gospel and this one representing the gospel without repentance. That one is clearly weaker. It's actually in repentance that we are stronger. And repentance is, some of you may know this, it's a Greek word, metanoia, which means to change one's mind. And it is a change of mind that will lead to a change of will, which will, over time, lead to a change in action. Repentance is the admission that the fault is ours and the experience of godly sorrow that it is so. And I was led to reflect on the prodigal son when planning for this. And we see that the son comes from the pig pen. He was probably more than likely dirty, very smelly. But we know what happens in that story. The father embraces the son. When we repent, we come to our heavenly father dirty. And I personally love revival history. And there's a great book called Do It Again, Lord. And I think you can get it on Amazon. Only secondhand. I feel like it's only available in America. But there's a long section based on the Hebridean revival. And for context, Duncan Campbell is the forerunner of this move of God. And he's just finished one of his first meetings in the Hebrides. And he's then asked, at four o'clock in the morning, God is doing so much stuff in the church that the meeting at the church finishes at three, four in the morning. And you're probably thinking at that point, I just want to go to sleep. But there was such a strong move going on that people didn't want to sleep. God was alive. God was moving. And so at four o'clock in the morning, Duncan was asked if he could go to the local police station. He probably thought in his head, at four in the morning? But he arrived at this police station to hundreds of people. Remember, these were the days before internet. These were the days before social media. These were the days before you could call a neighbour. Guess what's going on? And yet he saw hundreds of people on their knees publicly confessing their waywardness. And to quote Duncan, I saw a sight I never thought was possible. 
under the starlit sky. Men and women were kneeling everywhere, crying for God to have mercy on them. And when I read that story, imagine walking through Bolney to hear the sounds of people crying out. Crying out to God on their knees that he would have mercy upon them. The thing I find most beautiful, beautiful about that story is it's even before Duncan rocked up that God started to do that. It was God that led the people to repentance. It was him that brought the conviction. And really excitingly, there are recent reports of a revival and outpouring and awakening happening at Asbury University in the States. And the following was reported last Thursday. This is someone that was there, they decided to go, and it's for, they ended up saying, as I wiped the tears away and stood up, I noticed people lying prostrate up and down the aisles. One college student near me was on her face crying out to God in repentance. And the person recalled their professor at Seven Southern Baptist Theological Seminary who said that a sign of true revival begins with agony, not ecstasy. True revival begins with agony, not ecstasy. In the wonderful song, More Precious Than Silver, there is a line that feels particularly pertinent. And it says, Lord, you are more costly than gold. Following God is costly. The God that we follow is holy. The beauty of true repentance is that if we sincerely repent and turn back to God, he does not turn from us in our sin. He turns towards us. And I think that's what we see when we see those people on their knees weeping before God. It is the awareness of their sinful state that they have fallen short that they are dirty and yet God in his entirety he is clean and in his cleanliness he doesn't turn from the sin he turns towards the sinner and says I love you I want relationship with you in the words of Dane Ortland, author of Gentle and Lowly says it's a beautiful book by the way you really get to know the heart of Jesus in it and the quote says the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us the dam breaks it is not our loveliness that wins his love it is our unloveliness we don't have to pretend Something I personally feel God is really challenging me on at the minute. I'm doing some counselling with a friend. And it's kind of counselling, mentoring kind of thing. And the week before I had my first session, I really felt God was saying, you don't have to pretend anymore. 
and feel God may be saying that to some of us this morning, you don't have to pretend anymore. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. We are to do the things, as the church in Ephesus is called, to do the things you did at first. We are to love Jesus first. We are to love one another. The Old Testament commandment rings through here. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And as Jesus commands in Mark's gospel, love your neighbour as yourself. As followers and believers of Jesus, we are to love him first and foremost. And out of the love for him, love our neighbour. The church in Ephesus is being told to love Jesus, to love one another as they did when they first started. Is Jesus your first love? And it's the things, the things you did at first, the things for us may be time in his word. It's a challenge for me. Are we spending time soaking in his word? Not just reading it for the sake of it, but are we reading it because we want to learn from it? Time in prayer. I'm a firm believer that prayer doesn't always have to be a verbal communication, but I think prayer can be tears on your face. Prayer can be you in complete silence before God. But it is an awareness that he speaks. Yes, prayer is us speaking to him. It's him speaking to us too. Are our ears and eyes open? Our meeting together as Christians, I think we do that quite well at the chapel. We come together as family. Do we tell other people about Jesus? And I think it's when we fall more and more in love with Jesus that there's such a desire to share him because he is the best of all, the greatest of all, that we can't help ourselves. Wouldn't it be so cool if we all got that excited? That as we were so filled in love for Jesus, as we realise how much he loves us. If you think about the worst thing you've ever done, and yet he still says, I love you. That's crazy. That's grace. And we've been given the opportunity by Jesus to share him with those around us. And knowing that we are so loved by him will grow our boldness, will grow our confidence. And in verse 5, the second part, we read, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I was struck here that it's quite, that's quite scary that even if Jesus did remove the lampstand, the community could continue. Very easily, we could keep meeting here. But as an organisation, not as a church of Jesus. Not as the bride. And we need to get ready as the bride. 
we had a filling station planning meeting on Thursday night. And it was only a few of us and really felt a sense of urgency to start praying that as a church we would get ready. That we would prepare ourselves as the bride for our bridegroom. That imagery, even that imagery of us as the church being the bride and Jesus being the bridegroom changes something. That we would get dressed for Jesus, get ready for him. He's after a pure bride, a spotless bride, a bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle. How we need Jesus to make us ready. For he will return. We read that he will return. One day he will come back. And the great and terrible day that it will be. And on that Thursday evening prayer meeting. Just felt so convicted. Do I love Jesus most of all? Am I giving him my attention? Or am I giving this my, his atten- my attention? And that's what the enemy wants. He wants us to be distracted. With what's going on in the Church of England and all this blessing of same-sex relationships, it's so easy to get distracted by that. But Jesus is saying, but loves me. I love you, do you love me? And I did, I was in pieces at this prayer meeting. I just started crying and driving back for the first few minutes, just silence. There were no words, really. And I'm really struck that there are no words good enough to describe the love of Jesus. We can say it's unfailing, we can say it's never-ending. We can say it's incredible, we can say it's amazing. And yet, even that is scratching the surface of it. I think for me personally, Thursday was a glimpse. A glimpse to the love of Jesus. That there is so much more. And he wants to uncover them all. When we were praying about Aniska Lodge in Eastridge Manor, just praying in my head, Jesus, would you be invited into that place? When we picture Jesus going into a place, how powerful that is. And so you may want to do that even personally in a bit. We're just going to invite Jesus to come. He knows each of you. He knows each of us so much better than we do. And in verse 7, whoever has ears to hear, who's going to listen? Who's going to listen to these words of Jesus? To love him first. To repent. And to realise just how much he loves us. And loves us for being us. And I had another session of this mentoring yesterday. And saw that I was carrying 
so, many, so often we wear black coats, and in this picture I was wearing a black coat. We were just processing what that black coat was. And it may be that you're feeling fine this morning, but I know that we all carry things. And so this black coat for me represented fear, among other things, fear. And as the picture went on, I saw me take off this black coat. And I was given a white oversized t-shirt. And I laughed partly because I love oversized clothes. But also, we're called to be light. To be free of every burden. To be free of every weight. And Jesus is wanting to meet with you. And he's always available. He's not like a friend that might be like, oh, sorry, I'm busy right now. Can't, can't talk now. Even if it's three o'clock in the morning, the simple prayer of Jesus, I invite you to come. To come and meet with me. Reveal more of your love to me. And so why don't we, why don't we spend some time just to pray and invite the love of Jesus to come.